0: Welcome to Pop and Lock. I'm Natalie Dalzicki.
1: And I'm Landry Ayers.
0: A sitcom with two Avengers living out their best suburban lives. What could be better? But we all know by now that in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, there's always a catch. Here to discuss everything that went down in Wanda's Westview is the Tomlinson Professor of Political Theory at McGill University, Jacob Levy.
2: Hi, great to be back.
0: And the Creative Director at Fee, Sean Malone.
2: Yeah, thank you for having me again as well.
1: This show contains so much that we could talk about. There really are so many different things that could take up the contents of this episode. But I think the most prominent thing that we should probably start with, because it's the starting point of the show, is the use of the television tropes that it relies on, and specifically those of TV sitcoms. Why do you think... That vehicle was chosen by the showrunners to sort of move this story along. I I know we have the justification that Wanda during her childhood sort of was taking in these these dramas with her family and that that pivotal moment uh, sort of was was integral to the formation of her trauma. But why do you think that they chose that to be what she touched upon and that she would glom on to moving forward in dealing with this grief. What does that set of tropes and ideas do for the story?
3: So if, if I'm the showrunners, I'm thinking uh, of a couple of different things informing that choice. Uh, one, and the, the MCU creators are good about paying some attention to comics history without being simply obedience to it. But one thing is that, uh, in the comics, Wanda and Vision had a very important miniseries in the 1980s, actually one of Marvel's very first miniseries, um, in which they tried to go lead a suburban life. and um,
0: The dream. The mini- <laughs> <laughs>
3: um, a- after having had a tumultuous um, life, more or less together in the Avengers title for a long time, um, there that was what they were going to go try to do. And then in the 2010s, uh, written by Tom King, there was a parallel and even darker miniseries just starring Vision and his created synthesoid family that, again, went to the suburbs as a way to explore what it was going to be like to be inside Vision's head. So there's, there's a good comics inspiration for the... Um, the move to the suburbs and the move to domesticity the the move to television history and the adaptation of sitcoms and the reference uh, the kind of deep meta reference to sitcoms uh, is a little bit I think show in a good way Oh,
0: this, I loved it <laughs> this,
3: this, 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 this was this was the first show of Marvel's, this was Marvel Studios first TV show the, Distinguishing here the new line of Disney Plus TV shows from the Netflix shows Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Agent Carter, which were produced under the now defunct separate television. It was the first real MCU entry into television. It was the first original Marvel series for Disney Plus. uh, And there was a little bit of flexing going on here to say uh, yes. And and, and a little, and a little bit of flexing that made sense of uh, here's a thing we can do on television. Um, And after all, television is a different medium from the movies and let's use television as, uh, as a metaphor for things that are going on. Let's use episodic television as a metaphor for things that are going on. Um, That. I, I worry that saying it that way sounds self indulgent on that their part, but I don't think it was. I think it uh, shows some attentiveness to that they were entering a different genre here and signaling awareness that the different genre is different, and they shouldn't just be trying to make mini movies. They should be aware of the different genre at work.
2: Yeah, I, I hadn't really thought a whole lot about the the meta. Aspect of that, the, the idea that they're sort of commenting on their own entry into television, uh, as well as, you know, relying on things from the comics. And obviously, the comic book history, I agree with a lot. I think that that's probably a big, a big aspect of that choice. The other thing, too, and I, I think on a more practical level, perhaps... Um, doing that not only facilitates a tremendous amount of nostalgia, which obviously is, is pretty helpful for a lot of audiences and it, and allows us, you know, to find something really familiar immediately inside something that might be new otherwise, which is always a good, I mean, sort of a, a good tactic, but the other thing too, is that it, it grants you, a. like sort of maybe a triple cliffhanger in a lot of ways at the end of every episode. Because not only do you have the story cliffhanger, you also have the, well, you have two story cliffhangers because you have the one that's exterior to the Hex and interior to the Hex. You've got both of those things happening simultaneously. But you also now have a, a sort of meta level cliffhanger of like, what's the next genre that they're going to do? What's the next tv show what the next sitcom and that i found super enjoyable the the entire way through like it's you know when you start with like bewitched and sort of you know i love lucy and stuff like that and then we're going into maybe i dream of genie or something and then we're kind of getting you know and then getting all the way up into like malcolm in the middle and whatever all of these things like it, it created a guessing game for the audience which was super fun too and if you if you read people's comments or you know you hung out on kind of message boards on any of this kind of stuff you'd see a lot of predictions of you know what's the next you know what's the next reference that they're going to pull so i think that you know even just on a purely tactical level it's really really smart strategy on the producers end but i agree also it's a huge flex because these shows i mean they are i mean they are the quality of what i've come to expect from mcu but on tv You know, and in that context, it's, you know, I don't know if you guys, we can get into it later, but I actually also just watched last night the first episode of, or a couple days ago, watched the first episode of uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And there are, you know, similarly to Wanda, there are things that are not revealed yet, and it's probably going to be a little bit of a slow burn in some ways, but like the opening action scene was, you know, something that you would have expected to see in an Iron Man movie, easily. You know, and so they're really putting their best their best efforts into this stuff, which is that's a big game changer for TV, I think.
3: One of the things that uh, has most stood out in the critical reception of the MCU movies was when there was a genre at work that was not only superhero movie. Winter Soldier got huge critical uh, celebration for being an adaptation of the 70s suspense political action thriller Afrofuturism in Black Panther, and the buddy comedy in Thor Ragnarok, and to do things other than just reiterate Iron Man over and over again. (laughs) Um, So I I, I suspect we'll continue to see the, the MCU creators looking at genres that they can import and play with
0: it was also kind of crazy to me their attention to detail so like everything from like the intro music to every episode to the ads that they had on those i guess the first like 5 or 6 got their own ads and even for for someone to do like a short ad that was like what those ads were maybe 10, 15 seconds long that like Mm -hmm. also added to the story. It's like, you could tell they, that another, again, another flex, but you could tell that they were consciously thinking about it. Like as far as like the one ad was for, um, I think it was called like, it was Nexus, I think. And it was like for depression medication. And I'm sure we're going to get into like uh, this conversation about Wanda's grief, but like even throwing that in there, like if you didn't pick up that Wanda's grieving, like here you go. Like And kind of another thing I would add is like, I I like superhero movies, but I'm not like that all that crazy about superhero stories in general. But this one, like WandaVision really stood out to me as like significantly different than other like superhero movies that I've like followed or their TV shows. And I found it really enjoyable. And I'm wondering to myself if they even got a more unique audience from WandaVision that like a lot of people probably enjoyed this this show solely and didn't even I didn't need all that much outside information. It was helpful to have it. But I didn't necessarily need it in order to enjoy everything that was going on in the show.
1: Right. I had seen... I have not seen a lot of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I am not one of those devotees that is following every film and going to releases and watching them all the time. Uh, I you know, I saw the first few Iron Mans. I think I saw Winter Soldier... I might have seen Civil War. If you were to ask me what happened in any of the movies, I would not be able to tell you. I constantly mixed up Infinity War and Endgame and which order that they were in. (laughs) It just, it was never like my bag of like nerdy thing to watch, but I did enjoy them. And so I went into WandaVision knowing that there is a lot of backstory that informs it and would really allow you to get a much deeper appreciation out of the story than if you went in without knowing anything but with that i would say i still got a tremendous amount out of this story just with like researching and sort of figuring out the significance of certain events and what i think you were mentioning natalie about how I think a lot of people might not consider themselves superhero people, but I think one of the strong points of the Marvel Cinematic Universe has been the use of genre and the humor and comedy has always been a strong point for them. It's not always the best, and there's some movies that did it a lot better than others, but the snappy dialogue and wittyisms, you know, you know Iron Man and, and, his sort of like back and forth with captain america there there is always this fun banter element, and I think they realized that that was a very very much a keystone of what their brand of superheroes are about, and they were like, sitcoms are ensemble comedy shows where in the end usually just like they talk about shenanigans and i think the penultimate episode everything ends up fine in the end and they were like well if we can't make movies for our tv series what is the format that we can take that will allow us to lean into our strengths our comedy ensemble casts uh, big things and, and crazy things happening that ultimately get tied up in the end, and I think sitcoms might be one of the best ways to do that. And I am glad that they tackled that on a sort of meta textual level because I think it was it was really really interesting the way that they uh, chose to do that.
2: Yeah, you know, Landry, I think that um, Kevin Feige, I mean, obviously for a long time has has been. I I don't think anybody has to really say how much everybody should appreciate Kevin Feige's role in all of these things and how how impressive he has been over the last you know 15 years really more honestly you can Kevin Feige had worked on some of the Avi um, Arad Spider Man movies so, I mean Kevin Feige's been around for for a long long time but the I I think that another part of the strength and I think it goes to to how Natalie I think you can enjoy some of these things without having a lot of that backstory. Is that I think Kevin Feige is, has done a, such a great job over the years of finding ways to introduce elements from the backstory and be really reverent to a lot of the comics history because he is really that deeply familiar with it, but without turning it into something where it's it's always purely fan service or it's purely something that you'd have to get you know because again I mean going back to the beginning of this discussion we have this this idea of these tropes the tropes work on their own right. But you can get a whole bunch of other layers to them if you understand the Vision and Wanda history and the Marvel Comics history of them, you know, having you know miniseries about these kinds of things and things like that. But you don't need it for that to still be something that works. And so I think Kevin Feige's walked a really fine line of finding ways to be really true to the spirit of the comics while also just focusing on telling really, really good stories over and over. And I, I think that's something that, um, I, I may end up talking about this a little bit later cause it's kind of all dominating my, my life right now is the Snyder cut of the justice league. Um, <laughs> cause I'm doing an out of frame episode on it, on it near, in the near future. But, um, it's something that the DCEU I think has lacked to a large extent is, is having somebody sort of in control of that who really not only has a love for the history of those stories and the characters, but who also really understands how to tell those stories, how to transfer them to another medium, such as film or television. And I, I think that's been a struggle for, you know, for everybody, but Kevin Feige at this point, <laughs> yeah. I think. Yeah
0: along that same vein. They do a really good job of transferring the story like we said to this to this medium but also transferring the story in a way that's that it's relatable, right? So um it's very relatable to the audience and like so much of this show is about trauma and grief, but even in the beginning, it's not even in your face about it, right? Um, you don't really learn the extent of it, gosh, till season or episode six or seven, what is actually like deeply going on in um, Wanda's, Wanda's head. What role do you think grief kind of plays in this story? And also... Grief among the other characters that aren't Wanda, as well, because we can see them kind of going through different mourning processes as well. I mean, for everyone, this isn't a spoiler. Like we all knew Vision was dead, right? So everyone was questioning when they saw when they first saw the first trailer for WandaVision. They're like, "Hmm, how are they going to do this?" Or (laughs) um, so, kind of take take us through what kind of what mourning and grief, what role they play in the show.
3: One thing that I think is interesting about this is uh, how much Wanda's grief was told, not shown. Um, we we are at, at the, when the show begins. We are into her inappropriate, bizarre, superpowered coping mechanism, um, and late in the show, we see a couple of kind of grand operatic outbursts but by far the most effective grief scene in the show and as well as being the most effective in the last long run of MCU things since Infinity War was Monica Rambeau's return Um, and her return into the hospital where she had been sitting with her mother five years before. Um, The chaos of the return after the blip, after uh, Endgame, And confronting the grief of having lost her mother in the meantime and not not having been there to say goodbye to her. Uh, Really one of the most unsatisfying things about Infinity War, Endgame, Spider-Man Far From Home was how likely in an important sense the death of half the universe and the chaos of the return was treated. That scene was the first time that I felt like the MCU was starting to really deal with the weight of what had happened even after Endgame. And and then I think we were supposed to carry around our sense of Monica's grief. I, th- I think Monica's grief became the viewer's entry into what it was that Wanda was feeling that we weren't seeing her in the throes of.
2: Yeah. I, so I, I think, um, and it's, it's sort of uh, ignored a lot just because of the movie that it is. I think Ant-Man two handled some of that. Uh, okay. Actually. Um, but I agree. I, I think end game uh, in particular didn't, It sort of glossed over it. I mean, end game had a lot, a lot of other issues to deal with. So I, I appreciate that part of it. Um, But Spider-Man Far From Home, I think, is the real travesty in that in that sense, because they treated it in a lot of ways as a joke. They had kids who came back to the school and they were just complaining about how unfair it was that their friends were now 21 and they're still 16 or whatever. And, And those kinds of things are just like, well, that's not I mean, this is a lot more serious than that. Like, it's not something that you would take that lightly. But I also think one of the reasons why it's smart to have Monica be the one that's visually experiencing that grief is because Wanda's in denial the entire show. I mean, she is the the entire world that she created was a escape from that grief. So of course we're not gonna see it. Now we should talk about it at various points, and also I like that WandaVision was sort of smart enough to hint at a lot of those little pieces popping up throughout the show, like just weird things that were happening. And by the time, frankly, by the time you get to vision, vision, questioning all of this stuff and questioning the reality that he's living in and getting to a point where he actually releases his coworker from Wanda's, you know, brainwashing or whatever you want to describe that. I mean, that just opens the floodgates to us realizing what she's doing. Now, Wanda is still not aware of it, I think, or, or rather to the extent that she's aware of it, she's not really processing the fact that this is a grief based response. So it is, it is on the rest of us on the outside, not only the audience, but of course the other characters, you know, Monica and Darcy and Jimmy and everybody else. I think it's really important for them to see what it is, but Wanda can't see it until the very end, you know? And I think that that's, that's probably why we got a lot of tell telling and not showing in that context, but and, and and more importantly, why it still worked narratively. And it wasn't just a really boring like you're being hit over the head with exposition a whole bunch, which it didn't feel like to me in general.
0: Yeah, and I I also thought it was it was interesting the way that we found out, like we got more information about Wanda like what happened to Wanda and why Westview exists. Like I think it wasn't until episode six or seven where we get harkness is like going through with wanda like through different periods of time and like showing her what's happened to her um and kind of like revealing to wanda what's going on um and i when i first watched the season through i watched it twice last week (laughs) um when i first watched it through i thought that episode was a little bit oddly placed and i was like oh i wish i would have like known some of this stuff earlier like had that been like episode four but then i realized that it was like the second time through watching it that that would have been like incredibly disruptive to like the tv sitcom narrative that was going on for like solidly for the first i think five episodes and then it drifted a little bit but i understood from that perspective i also i didn't i didn't pick up on i guess when it was halloween that um Agnes was Agatha Harkness, um, so that was like a whole big shock to me. Um, I don't know if like a lot of other people re- picked that up like way earlier. I was like, oh, she's like she's like Kimmy Gibbler, she's like the annoying neighbor, and that's all. That's the purpose I thought she served. <laughs>
3: did you did did you have a reference for Agatha Harkness?
0: So I no okay. So I knew that I knew that Scarlet Witch like had a teacher. I had no idea what, and that was like my context of like, previous knowledge. I had no idea that what the person's name was or that she was going to come into play. Um, and I don't even know. I, I think right she, in the comics, she's like agnetha Harkness is like a teacher to Scarlet Witch. right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. That's okay. Right. I didn't even know if that knowledge was right. So <laughs>
2: no, the, the tricky part, the tricky part of, of a lot of this though, is that Scarlet Witch's backstory in the MCU is just wildly different from exactly. in the comics as well. So it's really hard to say where they're going to go with different characters. Right. Even if you are a fan, you don't necessarily know, you know, whether or not certain characters are going to come into play, and and then the other thing, of course, is part of the reason why. I mean, not to get into again, like the really the meta aspect of all this is like the reason uh, Scarlet Witch is, you know, Wanda's backstory is as a Strucker experiment and not as a mutant. You know, is because Marvel didn't own X Men at the time; they couldn't yeah. they couldn't bring mutants in, so it was just one of these weird quirks of licensing you know, licensing issues that they had to deal with. But then it also opens the door to like, well, do do they even have access to this character or can they, you know, would it be some other character, you know, who knows? I mean, now obviously they own Fox, so now they can do whatever. But (laughs) But at the (laughs) time
3: Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver were explicitly, if I remember right, contractually distinguished from other mutants because they were also Avengers characters and it was understood that everybody might be doing and different things with it, them.
2: It's just, it's just bizarre, though, because the, you can't call the mutants in that world because the mutant label is owned by Fox. <laughs>
0: ridiculous. But, but you
2: have these two characters who were mutants, but you can't, you can't call them mutants, so how do you deal with that? You've got to find some alternate way of getting them into the Avengers. and There's a lot of licensing issues.
1: <laughs> this sets up, I think, what I'm hoping will sort of be the spirit of the future of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which I think, obviously, pretty soon, based on what they set up at the end of WandaVision and what they're obviously going to set up with the Doctor Strange movie that's going to come out very, very soon, that she is probably going to have a pretty big, at least tangential role in um because you can see her in the post credit scene sort of astral projecting in a similar vein to uh, dr strange and reading uh the book of the dead to sort of glean more information about the scarlet witch um is that it's not going to be just the marvel cinematic universe it's going to be the marvel cinematic multiverse in the future and i think what i'm hoping i don't know if it'll turn out quite like this but i want it to sort of Lean in that direction because it will sort of capture what makes the comics side of Marvel so exciting and wide open and risky in what kind of stuff you can get published in comics is because there is this canonical understanding that Multiple universes exist simultaneously and that if someone wants to take a character or something like that, as long as they have permission or rights or something, they can go and adapt it and put them in a situation that is completely different than what their normal canonical storyline and and like uh, experience have been in the past. And because of the different powers and things like chaos magic and uh, multiverses, they are allowed to do that. And there are story and plot justifications for all of those things that can occur. Uh, It's how you get all of these weird mini stories and sort of side things like that. And previously, the Marvel Cinematic Universe has been different than the Marvel comic books, and it was different from the X-Men. But possibly now, and especially now that Disney owns all of these different franchises and has the ability to fully utilize them or a, a huge amount of them, I think we might see hopefully some risk taking. Maybe we'll get some X Men crossover. There was there was a like the subtle nod when they recast Pietro from his yeah. uh, previous actor to the one who played him in the X Men movies, uh, Evan Peters. I want to see more of that because I think it. they obviously are going to need more content. Now that streaming is a part of the game and it's not just movies, they're going to need to churn out even more superhero content to fill this void and this vacuum. And they're going to have to do some weird things like WandaVision. And I say just get weird with it. I think it's (laughs) it's an exciting time to get into Marvel.
3: My prediction is different. I, I think that other than the... What if and Loki series, which will be explicitly in and out of mainstream continuity, because Loki has now diverged timelines as of Endgame, and What If has as its stated purpose checking out alternate timelines. Uh, I don't think that we're going to get the X Men, uh, the previous X Men universe, continuing to exist as a universe. At most, I think we'll get. Wanda magicking mutants into existence in the mainstream Marvel universe in a reversal of her "No More Mutants" moment in the comics, um, and we'll have Deadpool from time to time making reference to the fact that he used to live in a different universe I and mean, now he lives <laughs> in this one. But, but, but we're going to get mainstream mutants in the mainstream MCU, not not a separate multiverse. The multiverse helps solve the Sony problem, though. The multiverse is going to let them have Spider-Man continuing to, you know, why is it that there's a separate Spider-Man verse with venom that doesn't cross with the MCU. And yet there, there are going to be multiple different Spider-Man running around. Like Spider-Man I, I think the multiverse is going to be a solution to some the problem.
2: Yeah, I, I totally agree with pretty much all that. I, I think, and it really, it's just a, a function of, of the timing of all this stuff. Cause I think if the X-Men franchise the Fox's X-Men franchise had been younger and if it had been something that wasn't developed starting in the early two thousands, I th- I think that like th- they probably would have done that. But in, in the same way, I think you know Tom Holland coming over in Spider Man and then bringing Venom in, I think I think you can do that right now because that's happening right now. The other thing too, though, is is like you're. There are so many things you can do with that. That I mean, they don't require you necessarily to bring in the X Men or whatever. There are tons, tons of other heroes, and there have been some failed attempts at some of these things too. I mean, think about like the Inhumans idea that they were going to go down that road at one point and created an. I by the way, I went to the uh, the theatrical premiere of the, the Inhumans TV show because they did one. <laughs> you and six other people in the world. Good man. It, was, it, was, it was literally me and six other people in this theater. And uh, I mean, because they, 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 man, they really, they advertised it as like, we shot this in IMAX. No, no, really, they shot like two scenes in IMAX and whatever the rest of it was not. But I mean- Inhumans is a whole territory that you can go with. Obviously, they're going down the road with uh, Secret Invasion and Scrolls and and you know all of the kind of spacefaring stuff that that Marvel can get into. They just they have a huge huge universe to play with, and I think opening up the multiverse is valuable. But I don't know if it's going to bring us like um, you know it brought us Evan Peters, but then they kind of walked that back. Similarly, I kind of thought that bringing Mysterio in was going to be a part of the multiverse thing. And then they kind of walked that back. He's just actually pretty good for Mysterio's character, actually, to be <laughs> completely fake yeah. in that sense. But, but, um, but at the same time, I mean, yeah, I think they're teasing it a lot more than, than they've actually gone down that road. I mean, it's a
1: dream so of far. mine. I, I, it's, a, it's a hope. I don't think I don't have high hopes that Disney is going to give me exactly what I want, but I can dream.
3: And, 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 I mean, the, the, the Evan Peters cameo, the Evan Peters appearance was just one of the all time great moments. And even though it was, so um, good, in, in the end played with, not fully embraced, um, it was worth playing with. It was glorious.
2: Yeah. No, it was. And look, I got to say, I mean, again, I'm uh, coming back to the the sort of comparison with DC. I actually want to bring up a challenge I've got with multiverse stuff too, because, and DC is kind of on this end of it. They're starting to bring in multiverse stuff too, especially if you've seen, I have no idea where they're going to go. Obviously there are are huge behind the scenes problems with that whole thing and and actor disputes and everything else. But so let's, if, if you guys, forgive me if you guys haven't seen the Snyder cut. Because, again, I've watched it twice now. So That's eight me. hours
0: and four minutes of your life.
2: Oh, it sure was. <laughs> uh, believe me. I know. Look, I actually, I, I appreciate, um, I, I actually think the Snyder Cut, I, I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm obviously, I'm writing an episode about this. And I, I'm going to actually talk about that on another podcast later today, in fact. But the... I actually like the Snyder cut a lot better than the original Justice League cut that we got. But one of the things that happens in it is that it actually does open the door in a pretty big way to multiverse stuff for DC. The problem, though, and this is Landon, this gets to my point about this, the what-if stories on some of these things, I think there's a danger, Marvel's not in this danger, DC's in this danger currently, of taking the what-if stories as the A story. Instead of taking your, your prime universe and then periodically adding a what if on top of it. The reason this is a danger for DC, and it's, it's always been a problem with the sort of Snyderverse, is you take a character like Superman, who you should establish as somebody who is just unfailingly good and bright and upbeat. And then instead of doing that story in the primary movies in your universe... You're doing stories pulling from a character from a characterization of Superman that are more in line with like the injustice kind of universe, like the really dark Superman is sort of evil kind of territory. And if you do that without having established your, your, your prime universe, you know, your, your 616 or whatever, you know, earth prime kind of stuff. Then you end up with the a story being the dark. What if version and the B story being, what should be the real version. You kind of twist your characters around. Marvel's done a really good job so far, I think, of really staying true to the, the sort of the core essence of the character, the sort of 616. I'm sorry, that's super nerdy reference, but hopefully people get that a little bit. But like to get some of that kind of that as the primary thing but doing that i think but that's been good because then you can do an alternate story and you can do a crazy timeline where everybody's a you know spider pig or whatever and it's fine right <laughs> but but you're not making that your main thing and i think that the risk that you have with dc is that they're like everything that dc's done it's too much too quickly in a lot of ways instead of building the universe from the core of the characters they're jumping into some of these alternate stories you know right away with batman they started with with the dark knight returns which is not a, a you know it shouldn't be a core canonical batman story it's a great batman story but it's an old batman it's a darker it's a literally like murderous batman it's not the batman that you want to start with you know and yet that's the one that they chose to bring in so uh, if there's a risk there too
0: I was thinking about this as you as you were just talking about like staying true to the character and like having your having your a story and then having side side shoots off of that and making sure your a story is like the best one to tell um and I, throughout watching wandavision i was struggling to decide whether or not wanda is is the villain or supposed to be the villain in this story and whether or not like they they, they didn't address the fact that like she had i mean tortured all of these people by keeping them in her in her world and i guess like that got me thinking while you were talking about like the character's true story like so was wanda supposed to be the villain and then are we supposed to like feel bad for her because she's going through this like immense grief and can't even like recognize it for herself and then like she like it was confusing whether or not uh wanda was supposed to be like a good like a hero.
2: Uh, So I I have, I have one, one addition to that question in general for this discussion, which is I have, I have long sort of held a theory that, that increasingly TV and film writers are losing the plot in terms of knowing when somebody's actually a hero or not. So a question, (laughs) no, I mean,
3: uh, quite quite a lot of
2: the time. I, I mean, I see, I see people again, like talking about the DCU stuff where you see Batman literally murdering people and you go, that's, you don't think that that's the heroic version of this character, right? Like that's not what this is supposed to be. But I do think that like people, you know, running along the lines of Zack Snyder's and sort of um, you know the J.J. Abrams of the world, which will always kind of go for the visual over the the character building part of things. I worry that that it's possible that the writers don't actually know, right? Like Yeah. May, maybe the writers think that we're still supposed to because. You know, Monica does sort of absolve her at the end of that. And for me, I I don't see how she's redeemable. And so that's a a really big question. And I I really, I want to know, like, if she's, we know she's going to be in Doctor Strange. So does she come into Doctor Strange as somebody who we're not supposed to trust? Or do we just ignore all of this and move on? You know, and that's, I think, a big question I've got with where the MCU is going to go. But I don't think she's redeemable at this point. I don't think you can do what she did, especially knowingly, and then still not not be. Because at at first, I think you can redeem somebody who literally doesn't know that she's causing this. Once she does know she's causing this, to to return people to that state, knowing that it's torturing them, knowing that it's taking away their free will and everything else. I, I just don't know how you redeem that. And then it's so glossed over at the end, which is super weird.
3: I, I, I definitely agree that people lose track of the distinction between a protagonist and a hero, and they they will give protagonists unearned moral uh, um, weight on scales, uh, and the the same actions, if committed by a character wearing the other colors, would have been understood as a tremendously evil act. There's there's also genre stuff that I think they didn't manage the transition with perfectly or they were a little bit more faithful than we are comfortable with to source material. Uh, it's very traditional in genre fiction, including superhero comics, including fantasy and science fiction, uh, for there to be telepathic and mind control powers. And it's extremely rare For the use of telepathic or mind control powers to be treated as being the kind of deeply morally shocking invasion that, of course, it really would be. Uh, You get characters just very casually reading each other's minds or engaging in mind control for a joke to make some, you know, not major enemy, but just someone who's kind of in their way do something silly and, you know. Xavier and Jean in the X-Men movies certainly use their powers in ways that we're just supposed to treat as, yes, that's their problem-solving device. That's their privilege of super strength. And sometimes you get a funny laugh because they mind control someone doing something silly. Uh, I think for Wanda to use mind control without it being viewed as a tremendous irredeemable crime That's something that could have happened in the comics. And it's just that when they did a good job adapting it to television and gave us good actors and real faces and people to, uh, when, when they let it be actual characters, and they drew our attentions somewhat to the moral cost of what was going on, it makes it harder for us to do the genre thing of sweeping it under the carpet. But then they did the genre thing of having Monica, whose place it isn't, to forgive on everyone else's behalf since she was there for a few hours or, um, and her family wasn't being tortured. Uh, for Monica to be doing the forgiving is it, – it, it didn't work.
2: So I'll, I'll point out too that – so t- take the X-Men movies, for example. There, there are plenty of instances where um, – and then actually I'll, I'll talk about Logan too because I think they're both really relevant here. But like take any of the any of the kind of previous X-Men movies, maybe X-Men – X-Men 1 or 2, or maybe both, Xavier stops an entire room full of people de- dead in their tracks. They can't move. The, the difference, and, and to your point, Jacob, I think you're absolutely right. Like The comics treat that as just a problem-solving device. It's just something Xavier can do, and it's really impressive, and it's cool, and it's something that his powers are just that that big and expansive that he can take down an entire airport, and everybody can just stop in their tracks. I I will say there's a distinction for me, though, that like that doesn't seem to hurt anybody. He seems to I mean, other than stopping time for a second, but he stops time for everybody. There are obvious implications to free will and everything else that are a problem for that. But he's not actually torturing them. So they don't physically physically experience pain. They're not like trying like at the end of the sequence with Wanda that when somebody comes out and says, if you won't if you won't let me go, just kill me like that is a level of horror that they touch on in this that like I don't think we've ever gotten in the in the X-Men stuff until I was going to say until Logan in which case we do see Xavier as a huge danger to everyone right at that point you understand that he's causing he's not just stopping people in their tracks but he's stopping their hearts he's stopping their lung function he's he's you know for- forcing people into tremendous pain all of those kinds of things but he's also seen as somebody who is a you know a 90 year old man who can't control it anymore and a huge danger to everyone you know so i think logan actually deals with that relatively appropriately only it's not his agency that's doing it it's just the fact that he's old and can't control his powers anymore i think when you get into the thing with wanda though it's it's a lot more terrifying cuz she's physically torturing people and hurting them and they and they experience it that way it's not it's not just i lost 2 minutes of my life you know, because Xavier stopped me for a minute, but it's it's actually I was tortured for months and you know months on end. That's pretty that's pretty dark, and it is weird that Monica just sort of goes, "Hey, nobody's gonna nobody knows what you've been through." <laughs> what do you mean? Like like lots of us have lost loved ones over the courses of our lives, And we don't you know we don't suddenly enslave a town as a result. Like that's not. That's not the normal response <laughs> to that.
3: I, I, I don't think they handled it entirely successfully, but it is the case that I've now forgotten the actress's name, but when Kitty Foreman from The 70s Show says, um, uh, if, if you're not going to release us, then kill us, uh, one doesn't return them to it after that. That's her wake-up call to let them go. There's, I, I think there's a strong narrative suggestion that she doesn't know that they've been sharing her grief dreams, that she doesn't know that their consciousness has been still awake underneath the blanket of sitcom that she's put on them. Um, I I think she's been telling herself a story that she's put everyone into a happy life. And that still would have been wrong if knowingly done. She's still stealing their existing lives. But I, I don't think there's a suggestion that she knows she's causing suffering and maintains it. She, she doesn't know she's stealing their lives and maintains it by, by two thirds of the way through the show. But.
2: I think that's true. I But I do also think that there's there's not any real atonement for it, first of all. Tot- totally agree. And secondly, she does she does put the wall back up as as things start to unravel for her once, you know, vision starts disappearing and all that so she does make a choice at, at one point to say that the wall is more important than these people's freedom. So, yes, a few of them managed to escape. Most of them perhaps managed to escape at that point. But she does put the wall back up. But, again, I think the atonement thing is maybe more than anything else. Yes. It's just kind of the, the bad part. Yeah. It's just She doesn't even seem to really acknowledge, oh, I did a really horrifying thing to a whole lot of people. And then it's kind of treated like, well, they're mad at me. Oh, I don't know. These people are just afraid of me. Well, yeah, of course they're afraid of you. Like, what? Why, why yeah. wouldn't they be afraid of you?
0: Yeah, I guess I, I was left unsatisfied by by that like part of the storyline, especially towards the end, um, because like again, again, we get like those two ending credit scenes, and I was like thinking, I was like, oh, maybe one of these ending credits is going to like give a hint as to like Monica or not Monica, uh, Wanda feels like terrible for what she's done and like all this stuff, but all we see is Wanda like sitting in a cabin in the mountains and then she's like reading um what's that book called
2: the, like, dark, the, Old. the dark the dark Old.
0: Old. Yeah, yeah, yeah she's like reading it and like the way it's shot makes me think now this is a prediction that she's like not necessarily going to like she's not going to learn from past mistakes especially as easily as she was just let off um so it makes me think that she's going to turn to be not so good um but i i i mean i don't i don't know enough about the Scarlet witch in general to know if that's like something that will happen. But, um, I just, I was, guess I was disappointed that the four, maybe we had like four times where someone like approached Wanda and was like, you have to let me out of here. Or like our kids, one, one of the actresses said like, our kids can be friends, that kind of stuff. Um, and it just didn't seem like it gave enough. I would have liked more of it along the way to seem that like, okay, this is actually like a really serious moral problem um where it was just so it was more thrown in at like as a second thought type thing um but that's just me personally yeah
2: well i yeah i mean i I totally agree i think i would have liked to have seen them handle that part of it a lot better but again i think it kind of goes back to what i was saying like i am not actually super convinced that most movie and television writers have a really good handle on these kinds of moral questions I mean, I, I give you as evidence, the entirety of television on the like, you know, <laughs> modern world, but, but I mean, cause I see that all the time. I mean, even, uh, sorry, I keep going back to this, but like, like I was watching, um, I was watching the one review of, um, whose review was I watching? I'm trying to remember who I was watching. So, somebody's review of the justice, justice league movie. Oh, Dan Murrells, Murrells from, um, formerly of screen junkies. And um, Dan, Dan was talking about the scene where Cyborg in the new cut has uh, powers over, you know, pretty much anything digital. Right. And so or anything technological in nature. So he sees a woman struggling with her with the ATM. She's at the ATM and she has insufficient funds and she's got a kid there and it's raining and he feels bad for her. So he just materializes one hundred thousand dollars in her bank account. You know, and he sees, and he does it in kind of a clever way. It it's shows up on screen, says like, "You've you've won our bank's, you know, best customer award, whatever. <laughs> it's a hundred thousand dollars, whatever."
0: That's never happened and, to
2: me. Sad. Yeah, it's never mm-hmm. happened to me either, unfortunately. <laughs> but um, but then he kind of walks away smiling. But uh, to Zack Snyder's credit, Zach's handling this in the context of a whole montage where where his Um, he's listening to a voiceover of his father talking about how powerful he is and how his abilities are going to allow him access to literally anything. And he can do anything he wants with all of these things and how he's going to have to make the choice to, you know, to use those powers one way or another. But the funny thing is I'm, I'm listening to the review and Dan Mural's like, oh, I love that scene because it showed us how much of a good guy he is. And I'm like, okay, so... It's not the worst thing he could have done. I think he's creating that money out of nothing. And then we can talk about the Federal Reserve and things <laughs> like that. But, well, it's not.
0: But, <laughs> but, next time uh, on and Lock.
2: <laughs> right, right, next time on and Lock, let's so talk about print, printing money out of nowhere. So really, he's probably just causing inflation in this context. So it may not be the end of the world in this case. But in reality, like Dan Murrell's giving him credit for essentially like taking money from the bank and putting it in this woman's account. I mean, that's sort of how we're meant to see it. And he's saying that that's a really good thing, right? That's a positive attribute. I think people miss some of those things because some of those things are a little bit more, you know, a little bit more complicated and they don't, like if on the surface, all you see is somebody doing something nice for somebody who's poor, it's pretty easy to just go, okay, well, that's the good guy. That's his like save the cat moment or whatever. But he's not really saving a cat. It's not the same context, so, but it's something that I think we've kind of, like, people really struggle with in general in writing. And um, I think that may be the case in Wanda as well. Yeah.
0: And the heroes just become more and more nuanced. And yeah, right. they're, Nuance. they're, yeah, their power, <laughs> their powers become more and more confusing then. <laughs>
1: they're just more
3: human. <laughs> I mean, good good adaptations at least show some struggle on the part of the people, uh, on the part of the protagonists. So the the Netflix TV shows mostly did a good job of at least having the characters be aware of the moral compromises they were making and worrying about them. Um, Dark Knight and Black Panther, in different ways, um, had some characters calling out the moral choices being made by the protagonists even if neither of them was entirely successful in answering the argument of the critics and the movies do end up saying, well, because this person is team H for hero, ultimately <laughs> we trust that their choices are the good ones, but at least the scripts allow there to be criticism of it. Um, and of course the X-Men movies. There so there are people who still think that in an important sense, the better of the X-Men movies were always making the argument that Magneto was right. And, even in a mediocre X-Men movie like Dark Phoenix, Magneto uh, you know, gets the chance to say, you're always sorry, and there's always a speech, but no one cares, Charles. Uh, <laughs> and there was, there was a lot of audience sympathy, I think, with that moment to say, I know you think your team H for hero, but that doesn't mean that your choices are actually good ones.
1: And now for the time in the show where we get to share all of the other things that we've been enjoying with our time at home.
2: This is locked in.
0: So how about Sean goes first?
2: Yeah. Um, apart from spending a tremendous amount of my life watching the Snyder Cut, <laughs> <laughs> um, I've, uh, I've actually weirdly, I, I, a lot of times like I like to work and, and put stuff on, you know, and kind of have stuff on. And I've been I've, I've been watching Lucifer on Netflix the last few weeks. And it's kind of interesting. I I didn't really know what to expect. It's not the best show that I've ever seen by any stretch of the imagination. But it is kind of interesting. And I think it's particularly interesting in in the moral arena because – well, and and in the characterization of Lucifer, it's actually based on a Neil Gaiman conception of the character, which I didn't know going in. And which actually explains a lot in terms of how much (laughs) I actually like it versus what I kind of expected. But – but one of the things that's really interesting about it is that Lucifer is constantly upset that the world blames him for evil because he is a punisher of evil and he does he is not a creator of evil and I thought that was a pretty interesting take on the character himself and then of course he um you know he's a weird character and that gets into a lot of like religious metaphors and things like that and I'm an atheist so that doesn't really like I have to kind of keep up with some of the deeper Catholic stuff that's going on in the show, but, mm-hmm. but, um, but it's interesting. And I, and I'm, I've been kind of enjoying it and it's been sort of a light departure from a lot of the other things I spent my time doing. It's <laughs> so, been good.
3: Last week I finally had a chance to read a novel that came out uh, a year ago by a disclosure, a friend and former coworker of mine, Salima Nawaz, um, uh, and it was a novel she'd been researching over the course of the previous seven years, set against the fictional world of a global pandemic of a novel coronavirus. Wow, um, that <laughs> too was, real.
0: Not not uh, funny uh, anymore. That, that <laughs> was at,
3: um, it was at the printers. Um, it was getting typeset last February. Wow. They, rushed, they rushed the ebook out for obvious reasons. Oh, I'm and, sure uh, they were like, go go go! Book, yeah, and the physical book came out in August. Um, and it, it is fascinating, first of all, how much the research was paying off and creating a really very plausible and got a whole lot of things right image about how these things work. Uh, but it's it's really a, a human character and relationship novel. It's not fundamentally an apocalypse novel or disease novel. Um, it's a really lovely work, and I didn't read it over the winter because I wasn't I wanted some escapism in my fiction, and I wasn't quite ready to read. <laughs> um, but a, a pandemic novel uh, but it's, uh, uh, and it's, it is in that sense not escapism and some people might want to wait until it's all after but, but it's a really wonderful book and uh, I recommend it very highly oh Songs for the End of the World I didn't say the name I'm sorry Songs for the End of the World is the name of the novel
0: so I, for me, I just finished reading The Invisible Bridge, which was a, it's a fiction book, uh, set in World War II. It's very good. Um, World War II fiction is like my bread and butter for books. I guess that's kind of, uh, not really an escape, just more interesting to me. Um, and I read, I watched Yesterday on Netflix. Um, again, it was just like, it's a comedy. And it has Jennifer Garner in it. She's, she's like the strict mom and she tells her kids that they'll, they're going to celebrate Yesterday it's like a day she has three children and a day where the mom has to say yes to everything that the kids ask and her kids range in age from like two to like teenager. Um, So it's, it's, it's a really cute movie where they go from like the two year old wants to go to the ice cream store at like 10 AM and they do some kind of ice cream. They do like the, the biggest ice cream you can buy there. And if you eat it all in an hour, like you get it for free type thing Um, range to like more like serious family relationship. Discussion that goes on too, um, but it, it was a cute movie, and I, I like Jennifer Garner. So, um, and then other than that, I haven't really been watching anything too new besides just keeping up with This Is Us, which is, I've been watching for a few years now. And um, yeah, that's that's pretty. Oh, um, shoot, I'm gonna forget. The, uh, Manifest comes back on, and I've been watching that. On NBC, I think it's it's in its third season now. I thought it was going to get cut because of Corona, because they were cutting all these shows that like only had half a fan base. Um, but that one's that one's like another typical like a plane leaves and then comes back five years later, but everyone on the plane thinks it only was like one short flight. Right. Um. It, that one. Yeah, it's really good. I enjoy it. Um more it's not like lost where they're like stuck on an island but um they come back to real life and it's suddenly 5 years later um but yeah that's that's kind of what i've been what i what i've been up to
1: uh i recently uh i have never owned a playstation before until this past week so
0: proud of you and i bought
1: my first ever play- i was an i'm a we're a nintendo family <laughs> um <laughs> But I got my first, I got a PlayStation 4. I, I, I am a generation behind because it's easy to get those, and now they're cheaper because everyone's cram- like scrambling for the PlayStation 5. So I got a 4 on sale, um, and I downloaded Red Dead Redemption 2 and have been riding around uh, the vast, fictionalized American West uh, as a cowboy, um, hunting deer and... Wrangling outlaws and chasing tumbleweeds, and it's just a blast. It's it's so fun and it's a beautiful game. Uh, if you have not played it, it's like playing a movie. Um, I it it's just really great. And I I'm not a fan of the like Grand Theft Auto games, the other stuff that Rockstar has done before. Um, so there's you know I mean obviously there's some questionable moral ambiguity there, uh, for a character like that as well. But they they lean into that and that's kind of part of the story uh, and and what they're going for. But it is there's no denying the performances in it and the technical production involved in a game like that is is really, really amazing. Um, I also uh, started watching this show. It's a Japanese show uh, on Netflix called Midnight Diner. And then they released a a couple other uh, like special for Netflix series uh, versions of it called Midnight Diner Tokyo Stories. Um, And it's this sort of weird ensemble story about this little tiny diner in Tokyo where this guy invites all this sort of rotating, this revolving door of characters that come in and he serves them food and he learns about their lives and sort of drama unfolds. There's bits of magical realism and uh, sort of weird circumstances and you rarely see the same people twice. Um, but it's kind of moody and uh, and very heartbreaking at times. And uh, it's just, it's very simple and and kind of, atmospheric which i really really like um so that's been kind of interesting and special shout out to my dungeons and dragons party we had our 50th session Woo! yesterday oh we we have been going <laughs> with so this proud. campaign congratulations
2: it's, man i'm
1: to keep one going for that long yeah. i'm considering it a very big personal accomplishment as a dungeon master it's on his wow. resume right now <laughs> it's, it has been one of the things that has been able to get me through this pandemic, along with my lovely wife, um, who is also in the Dungeons and Dragons party. So that helps. Um, but yeah, so a so special shout out to my party. They were gifted a villa. They met the queen. They got their biggest gold reward uh, they've received yet. And... Uh, The big bad villain also uh, is working on corrupting one of our players who was recently reincarnated. So we'll see where (laughs) that goes. So very exciting. (laughs) Thanks for listening. As always, the best way to get more Pop and Lock related content and to connect with us is to follow us on Twitter. You can find us at the handle at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock with an E like the philosopher, Pod. Make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by me, Landry Ayres, as a project of libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.